Join me in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3, 7, or 3 through 7 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, by your life-giving word, your regenerating spirit, and for the sake of your Son, feed your sheep, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read aloud if you'd read silently with me. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. We've gone through Habakkuk, we've seen the trials and perplexities that he's gone through, and we've been able to resonate with that because we live in a fallen world, and we have many trials and perplexities, and we all witness evil in the world around us, and we are often confounded as Habakkuk has been confounded. And last week we saw the confidence that Habakkuk said, in those uh, those moments he said, In wrath, remember mercy. That was his prayer. And this hymn of prayer that he's written for the congregation of God, In wrath, remember mercy. And I want to explore a little bit more today the relationship between wrath and mercy. How do wrath and mercy relate to one another? Does God play good cop, bad cop with us? At some moments we get the good side and other side times we get the bad side. Is he the yin and the yang? Challenging times can make us ask God, is God showing me his wrathful side right now? God does not have a wrathful half and a merciful half. He's not composed of parts. He is consistent. He he is justice and mercy, and wrath is is a product of his justice. So I want us to see this morning, uh, it it is unhelpful to split God's wrath and his mercy because in a single consistent action, he can display both. Romans 9, 22 and 23, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured much with much patience vessels of wrath and prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory see there's a consistency in the redemptive plan and, and wrath and mercy play part, a part in, in, in his plan it's a single plan It's God's consistency which is the basis of our faith in Him. He's not capricious. He's not going to change His mind in an instant and flip from light to dark on us. 
It's not a, a heads or tails gamble with God. So the message this morning is a call to faith, to believe in the God who is both wrath and mercy. And, and as we observe um, God's activity, we do so in a broken and fallen and confusing world, but we have a powerful God who displays terrifying strength for the sake of mercy. So in this hymn from Habakkuk, from, which really kind of goes from verse Three, begins in verse 2, but be, goes verse 3 to verse 15, Habakkuk is painting this picture of the march of God. It's like a, a military march. He is rising up out of the south, and at the end he will conquer, con- conquer his enemies and vanquish them in really a humiliating way. So it begins with his approach here in verses 3 through 7. This is God's approach to um, the battlefield, if you will. This psalm, if we want to call it a psalm, is meant to display the awful power of God. And as we look at it, I believe we're meant to see that God is both awesome in his wrath and mighty in his mercy. So we're meant to to have a holy fear of the God of hosts. That that word that the, the Bible calls hosts, God of hosts, is really literally the God of armies. He, he's a military mighty God. We are meant to have a holy fear of him, but we're also meant to recognize that those wrathful military acts against his enemies are the very thing he uses to to secure for us salvation and mercy. So our God is a consistent and powerful God, and he is the steadfast object of our faith. We have three exhortations this morning, which really all amount to the single simple exhortation, have faith in God. Have faith in God, particularly in seasons of trial. So the first exhortation is have faith in God who has shown his power to his people. Have faith in God who has shown his power to his people. Um, Our situations are at times overwhelming. They seem to have kind of their own intimidating power over us. They're almost like personified They're like these great muscle-bound giants to us. And we never feel like we're going to match their strength. We'll never overcome them. It's it's a bit like the Israelites when they're going into the wilderness and they send out spies and they freak out. These people are giants. We're like grasshoppers to them. We can't beat them. And they whine to Moses. (laughs) They say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or died in the wilderness. They actually wanted to go back to Egypt, where they were slaves, rather than face these people. And we, like them, oftentimes fail to recognize that the Lord of armies is on our side. Yes, we are small and weak, like grasshoppers, but what we have is God and His power and His promises. So Habakkuk's song here paints a picture of what it's like to have faith in the powerful hand of God through and in the midst of circumstances that overwhelm and terrify us. So he calls us to reflect on who God has shown himself to be through redemptive history as the bedrock of our faith. So verses 3 and 4, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the, like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. 
Where is he drawing our attention here? Paran and Taman are mountains in the region of the south, region of Sinai. You flip over to Exodus 19 real quick. I think he's drawing our attention to Sinai. Exodus 19, we'll begin in verse 16. This is right as God's about to give the Ten Commandments. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. If you just jump down to chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. Exodus 20:18 through 22 Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet in the mountain smoking the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and Moses and said to Moses you speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us lest we die <laughs> Moses said to the people Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So you see, I believe he's drawing our attention to this event at Sinai, these flashes of light, this, this coming from the south of Mount Paran and Mount Taman. This is Sinai. He veiled his power in, in smoke and cloud. Now Habakkuk, in his day, he's in this grave and terrible situation. The, the Babylonians, the fierce Babylonians, are coming to destroy Judah. God has told him this. And where does he place his focus and the focus of the corporate community in this song of prayer? Is his focus on it's going to be all okay, it's going to be just fine? God will save you from all the pain and discomfort. You're his people. That's not where he puts his focus. He takes the eyes of the people and shifts them and places them off of themselves and on God. He's saying, remember the awesome power of God at Sinai. Remember the covenant He made with you. Remember that He has spoken to you. And so often what we want is just relief from the pain. We want answers and we want not to suffer. But suffering and trial and confusion are often the means that God uses to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on himself. Psalm 119, the psalm about the word of the Lord. Psalm 119.71 It is good for me that I was afflicted. 
that I might learn your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Habakkuk also says that God came from Timon, that God is moving here. He's coming up from the south. Remember, this is a military march of the Lord, and he's a mighty warrior, a king arising from the south. So I picture kind of this Exodus event, this wilderness event, and, and the flashes of lightning on Mount Sinai, and the people from Canaan up north seeing this like display of lightning down south. What's going on down there? And, and it begins to put some fear into their hearts. They, they start to wonder. They, this is the beginning of some very disconcerting events for them as the people become come closer and closer. God strikes fear into the hearts of his enemies. And the people of God in Habakkuk's day have forgotten the fear of the Lord. They've forgotten the Holy One, the God of smoking, flashing mountains. And this hymn is meant to remind the people who God is. The God who came up from the south, striking fear into the hearts of the nation of their enemies. They've not honored God, but they've kindled his anger. And now they will be really at the receiving end of the terror of the Lord. This, this time Judah will bear God's wrath. But it's also a comfort because wrath is not the end of the story for Judah. Mercy is sure to follow because the God who arose with terrifying might to bring them into the land of Canaan isn't going to forget his promises to their father Abraham. Habakkuk calls to the minds of the people the events of the exodus in the wilderness and the conquest to remind people that the strength of the Lord is and always has been their redemption. The might of God vanquished the wicked Canaanite nations. So Judah will not be stomped out. This is not um, the end of Judah. This is chastisement on Judah. This is discipline. God's power and his wrath are the same, really, because he's the same God. They're the same today as as they were then. And we need to be reminded of the power of the Lord as well. We often need the fatherly chastisement of God. We need our eyes to be redirected heavenward. So let's be careful, lest we ignore the glory and power of the Lord and begin to take it for granted. That's really the warning of all of Hebrews, isn't it? Don't take the glory of the Lord for granted. As we saw last week, God remains a consuming fire even for the redeemed. He's worthy of worship and fear and reverence and awe because he's a consuming fire. And remember also that his power and his might have been used for our redemption. He has really, in a sense, brought us into the promised land. We we stand apart from, from ancient Israel. In Hebrews 12 Verses 18 through 24, we read, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here's what we have in Christ today. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are in Zion. We are in that unshakable kingdom now, sprinkled clean by the blood of the new covenant. And our powerful God has secured this for us. So when we're in those seasons of perplexity, when we don't understand the plan of God, when the wickedness of the earth seems to prevail over righteousness, when we we must bear the reproach of Christ and suffer, or when the impossibility of our plight overwhelms us, we need to remember the God of power, the, the God who arose from the south to conquer Canaan, the God who veils his power so we don't die who has used his mighty arm to redeem his people and who has brought us to Mount Zion by the blood of a better covenant. His chastisement, his discipline, our suffering is meant to draw our eyes off of the vain delights of this world and to place our faith in God who has shown his power to his people. God, on his military march, did not stop in the desert. He kept going and his march continues and the, the text kind of progresses from approach toward action and Habakkuk continues as he goes to urge us to put our faith in God. So the second exhortation here is have faith in God who has shown his power in the world. Have faith in God who has shown his power in the world. And you have to forgive my pessimism. Uh, when I read the Bible, I, I see this thing called the last days, which is the days between Christ's first and second coming. And what I see in the Bible is an increase of wickedness and apostasy. Now, I believe that sort of eschatological millennial view is actually very optimistic, but my optimism isn't really in the progress of this world, but in the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken, the kingdom of heaven, of which we are already residents. Um, but I very much digress there. I have to get in my occasional millennial plug to some of you. But whatever your millennial view is, I think we have to agree the news is very overwhelming. We, we get the occasional win here and there, but by and large, looking at the world over, I think we can echo with equal relevance the psalmist's question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's easy for us to say, where is God in the tragedy? Where is God in the calamity? Where is God in the apostasy? Like Habakkuk, we can start to ask the question, how long will you make me look at evil? When will you take action? It's not easy to have faith in God if we're just looking for results, and especially when those results are defined on our own terms. 
I need to pause here and, and explain a few technical details, um, which will, I think, help us better understand what Habakkuk is getting at here. Um, it, it would be nice to have a neat, clean progression of uh, th- where this text corresponds directly with events from the Exodus and, and the conquest. That, that's what I was searching for at first. That's what I thought he was doing. Um, and for me, I would love that. But And, and really, many people have tried. But I think we need to apply some basic hermeneutical interpretive principles here and that this is not the book of Galatians, which we'll come to in a few weeks, which is very much a nice linear logical teaching. This is prophetic literature. It's Hebrew poetry and it's a psalm within prophetic literature. So as much as I'd like to have it align with, with my very American linear analytical mental framework, Hebrew <laughs> prophetic poetry is not that type of literature. Prophecy and Hebrew poetry employ extensive use of, of imagery to get the point across. The grammar also itself makes a strictly linear interpretation difficult. In the, in the Hebrew, they don't really have, in the way we do, past, present, and future. They tend to think in terms of completed action or incomplete action. They have what's called the perfect tense, which is completed action, and imperfect tense, which is incomplete action. And you'd think that these verbs are... Perfect tense, complete action. It happened in the past. God already did this, but they're imperfect. There's ongoing. There's something yet to be fulfilled in these verbs. So if Habakkuk was speaking strictly in terms of historical analysis, he could have used the perfect tense, the completed action. Um, The NASB translation picks up on this by translating the verbs in the present tense rather than the past, which I think is legitimate. So comparing Habakkuk 3.5, In the ESV and the NAS, the ESV says, Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Past tense. But the NAS, before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. I think both are equally legitimate. All of this to say that strict literalism and attempts to apply a linear timeline are unhelpful in this passage. It's better, I think, to think in terms of what O.P. Robertson describes. He, sa- he asks, does Habakkuk talk about the past or the future as he describes God's coming in all his glory? Without doubt, he drew from a number of past man- manifestations of God's glory in the history of Israel. But he is rehearsing the past to remind of the way God had previously acted, or is he predicting what shall occur in the future by employing language descriptive of the past? His conclusion is, it is a collage, a collecting of many images to convey an impression both of the past experience and of future expectation that is the medium of the prophet. Okay, so we've gone on an eschatological millennial rabbit trail and and a hermeneutical rabbit trail here. So we'll get back to the text now. I think that it's helpful, though. Verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
So again, he pictures God on the march, and here he's wreaking havoc as he goes. The pestilence is sent before him, weakening and destroying his enemies, and as he leaves, plague follows in his wake. We think of Egypt, right? Pestilence and plague as he went in, and they were destroyed, undone. This mighty kingdom of Egypt was undone as he left. Also, mountains really are a picture of immovable strength. Um, and since they have been since the beginning of time, they're, they're that place of refuge, a stronghold against enemies. They're, they're really a mountain is the essence of untamable strength. I mean, there's several miners in the room. Do you tame the mountain or do you just kind of live with her? <laughs> Before God, these eternal mountains were scattered, he says. The everlasting hills were laid low. This is the symbol of strength and permanence, bending the knee to the eternal God. Now, will this nation of Chaldea, the Babylons, will they be the first to stand against the God who scatters mountains? Will Babylon conquer the Lord? Will they stand against the one who shakes the nations and measures the earth? It's God who determines the period and allotted boundaries of the habitation of the peoples. If the mountains are going to bend the knee to the mighty warrior king, we should consider what about Judah and what about us? Should we not stand in awe? God's ways in the world confound us. We don't understand God But he does display himself in the world as powerful. And again, ultimately his wrath and mercy are on display amongst the nations and they will result in the good of his people. Joel 3.16 runs parallel to this, this text. The Lord runs, excuse me, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. We need to remember as we observe the world around us and as we're bombarded with this host of really sickening injustices and perversions that God is still in control. He's the God who brings the eternal mountains low. He he shakes the nations. His justice will be served and is being served, perhaps even despite appearances at times. If if Habakkuk was looking for results in human terms, he could have he he could not have expressed this kind of confidence that he expresses. So instead of undertaking a sort of philosophical theodicy, a defense of God, seeing that there's even evil in the world. And he, he doesn't try to explain away the existence of evil. He simply affirms the complete and total sovereignty of God over the nations and over the world. Instead of critiquing divine governance, he submits to it. Who are we to think that we can critique God's activity in the world? Habakkuk here calls us to submit in faith to the God who shows his power to the world. Finally, we see as God approaches the battlefield, he's not there yet in this text, but there's an effect that his approach has on his enemies. 
And the final uh, exhortation here this morning is that we have faith in the terrifying God of war. Have faith in the terrifying God of war. Um, so in Joshua, uh, in the beginning, they're coming up to the river Jordan, and at Shittim, God splits the waters like he did at the Red Sea, and the people pass through. And we're told in that text that the people of Canaan were terrified. It made them tremble. And I think that's the sense conveyed here in in verse 7 when it says, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. There's a variety of interpretations here as who who exactly are these people. Um, They could have been the Bedouin tribes as the people proceeded through the wilderness. Um, they could have been peoples who afflicted God's people during the time of the judges. The, the story of Gideon, whenever he um, defeats the Midianites by just a few hundred, because God that's the way God um, designated it. It could have been any of those people, and we're not quite sure. But whatever the case, the purpose of Habakkuk is to show that God is the God who shakes the nations and brings eternal mountains low, and he's the God who causes people to shake as he approaches them, to tremble in fear. My mind is is drawn again to that scene in the wilderness. The people quaked in fear at the idea of trying to conquer the land with giants in it. They were petrified. And then Caleb and Joshua said, well, we should go in. Their response was, stone them. (laughs) They were terrified. Numbers 14 Joshua and Caleb say, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And this is God's response to Israel. 14, Numbers 14:11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have done among them? He, he's brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea and the Jordan River on, on dry ground. Or they haven't gone through the Jordan River at this point, but he's done all of this signs, and they they still don't believe that he will take them into the promised land that he's promised to Abraham. Our God is the God who causes the tents of Midian to tremble, and He's shown His power to His people, and He has shown His power in creation and to the nations, and yet. We are quick to fear man who can kill the body, but not to fear God who can kill and destroy the body and soul in hell. This is where I am compelled to seek the mercy of the Lord, because His wrath is truly terrifying. If we need the favor of the Lord, we can call with the words of Habakkuk and say, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. And really, it's the cross where mercy and wrath find their greatest expression. Because there, the cup of wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. 
And the cup that he drank was our cup, but God's greatest act of wrath was also his greatest act of mercy. Because there at the cross, he saved us. So the question this morning is very simple. Do we have faith in God? Do we have faith in the God who has shown us his power, who has shown his power to the nations, and who causes his enemies to tremble before him? In the midst of great trial and confusion, or even small trial and confusion, do we trust God to rightly dispense his wrath and his mercy upon us? And and do we find ultimately refuge from the wrath of God in the mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ? Amen.